you can breathe through your nose or you can breathe through your mouth. And if you're breathing through your mouth, then your tongue's not on the roof of your mouth, point blank. And having your tongue on the roof of the mouth is vital to growth and development of the um, maxillary complex, I believe. I think all the evidence says this. But So it, it, it's vital that you have a patent nasal airway and you use it. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Lin, and welcome to The Mouth-Brain Connection. Have you ever felt that you weren't given the answers that you needed to get your health on track? On this show, I'll take you on a journey through the truth about how to really be healthy. As a practicing dentist, I experienced the same questions as you did, but as a clinician. Ever wondered why dentists are segregated from medical practitioners? It's a strange disconnect we've created in our society, and it means we see oral disease as separate from the rest of the body. Well, in the real world, it doesn't happen like that. Over many years, I've collated patient experiences, clinical techniques, and multidisciplinary approaches looking for the answers you've been searching for. It turns out that the root causes of all dental diseases are the precursors that fuel systemic diseases. The mouth, through cut and dry anatomical nerve connection, blood supply, lymph drainage, and muscle innervation, is the most tightly regulated part of your body. To heal the body, you must align your oral health. On this podcast, I'll be showcasing the best and brightest minds in the world of functional, biological, oral systemic medicine. We'll be sharing with you the practical tips to prevent and reverse dental diseases through nutrition, sleep, and postural correction that heal your mouth and body as one. So let's get started. I'm excited to explore the mouth-brain connection with you. What is the root cause of crooked teeth? All health issues are a mix of genes and environment. Yet for some reason, the environmental causes of crooked teeth or dental malocclusion is far less commonly discussed. Change in the oral and body posture is known to affect how the hard tissues and soft tissues interact. Posture in the mouth can be identified as breathing and tongue posture. So how does this go wrong in childhood? Well, nearly all children experience at least one blocked nose in early infancy. Most have complete nasal blockage for days at a time. When they are forced to lower their tongue and open their mouths to breathe, it often becomes a habit. The teeth and bone occupy a space between the soft tissues of the tongue and the lips and the cheek. These have a vacuum swallow that can be changed when the posture of the tongue isn't sealing off the back of the throat. In an ideal swallow, the lips and cheek should be completely passive. The problem appears to be that individuals never fully convert from an infantile suckle to an adult swallow. We now know that tongue posture and breathing can predispose to certain conditions like sleep apnea and sleep breathing disorders. Today, my guest is lecturer and lead clinician at the London School of Facial Orthotropics, Dr. Mike New. Dr. Mew lectures and teaches extensively around the world and has a personal interest in the growth and development of the face to identify the effects of changes in posture, function, and muscle tone and its relationship to orthodontic problems. Dr. Mew uses the orthotropic system to reverse the underlying conditions that lead to crooked teeth, sleep apnea, snoring, and temporary mandibular dysfunction, amongst a range of other symptoms. I visited Dr. Mew's practice in the south of London and had the opportunity to observe his methods and hear his philosophy. And he's one of the deepest thinkers in this space. He's the founder of the Mewing Trend on YouTube. What he 
advocating for is a scientific discussion on why crooked teeth happened so that we can be better informed as to how these conditions both affect and how we can treat them. This episode is split into two parts. There's two hours uh, because there's a lot to cover with Dr. Mew and you know, he's just a really interesting person. You know, his history goes back to his father, John Mew, who has been voicing these issues since the 60s and 70s. So a lot to talk about. This is part one with my interview with Dr. Mike Mew. We're good. We're alive. Hi, Mike. Hi, Steve. Sir, how good we are. And we meet yet again. <laughs> it's been a while. And um, look, I've been really looking forward to, I really want to introduce you to the people out there um, who haven't heard of you, but there's a lot of people that have um, followed your work in discussing the connection between the development of the jaw uh, you know, the history of humans, which is one that I'm really interested in, is the, what we learn about the, the dental arch, the jaw, and what it teaches us about uh, human history. And what we're seeing today uh, in terms of how it translates to uh, orthodontic treatments and what, what, what is this connection between jaw growth, the dental arch, and how our kids are growing and developing. Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. That's okay. Pleasure. Pleasure, Steve. And it must be early for you and a little late for me, but we're covering. Yeah, exactly. Time. The UK is a hard time. We're kind of in the last weeks now, where the UK is um, the before the clocks change, it goes mm. the opposite way in Australia, and then yeah. it's nearly impossible for for half yeah. the year. Yeah, it's very dark here in Australia. Mike, that we've been hearing this kind of conversation ramble um, for the last, you know, probably decade. You were recently published in the New York Times um, in, in terms of your your story, uh, how you um, how you you moved into discussing jaw growth and how it relates to dental arch formation. Can you take us back a little bit to where it all where it all started? So you're you're a specialized orthodontist. Can you tell us how you began to think about where these um, you know, these questions in your head about jaw growth and factors affecting um, people's and child's development of the jaw. Well, Steve, you know, the, the, to, you, you, I can't give a date on that because remember, I was John Mew's son. My father had an office at home that he never used. He would always prefer to use the kitchen table. So after dinner, um, before I went to bed, I would often go and sit at the table beside him from, you know, a tiny age, listening to, you know, the, you know, and he would, he would stop and he would talk to me because he would always want a break. I'd come through. He would talk to me about what he was doing. And, you know, he is a, he's a very engaging man, my father. And it became impossible not to be interested in this subject. So I decided to go to dentist school at the age of 14 with a principle of doing this. I actually, I remember my best friend, I remember he had a hole, he had a retained baby tooth, a lower um, left E, if you know the terminology. And I remember saying to him, I'm going to become a dentist and I'm going to fill that tooth. <laughs> to which I did. And I put a gold onlay on that tooth. And he then took it out with a pair of pliers. So there we go. But, you know, I, I, you know, I always wanted this. It fascinated me. You know, it didn't just fascinate me. But, you know, I remember when I was a long, even before I actually started doing orthotropics, 
things. You know, I was just a dentist, even a dental student. And I remember, you know, if I was at a dinner party and I brought this subject up, it would captivate everyone to the point where I'd actually have to stop the conversation and move it on to someone else. Because, you know, as I say, the only people interested in what I'm doing are people with faces. If you've got a face, you're going to be fascinated, absolutely fascinated, because you've got you're invested in this. It's fascinating. You, you mentioned you know, the human face, obviously, that is you know very fundamental to our species. And uh, there was there, probably an earlyish moment. I think um, might have been reading one of a paper or um, it was maybe one of a, a lecture that you did on, um, on, on the development of the face and the, and the jawbones and the features. And, you know, the, there's a lot of connections there to how the human body grows and how nature grows in certain patterns. And there's this really interesting way that we, we transmit what we perceive in someone's face and what we, what our, our what our body is telling us about the the genes of that person, and so how people procreate and so forth is is heavily based on and communicate obviously the the formation of the of the face. It's kind yeah. of very. This goes deep into our into our you know human psyche, which is probably what you're you you're finding there, well, right? Is, that, that people are connected to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is the sort of concept of mate selection. So, you know, um, evolution. Um, came um, was the really you know the the person who really put the information in into him uh, evolution was of course Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather. You know he he had, you know he he came up with many of the ideas attributed to Charles Darwin, not all of them. And you know why was Charles Darwin on the Beagle going to the Galapagos Islands in the first place? You know he was there to prove the theory that he already knew, you know that his grandfather had told him about. What Charles Darwin had some really great insights. You know, you know he was fascinated with the evolving um, embryos that taught us a great deal, and of course he was also fascinated with mate selection, and that's where we're going with this. So why do you select a certain person? And, you know, the, the, the information on this is fascinating. And I remember a study where they took wedding photographs and they cut them down the middle. And then they got women to order the men in order of attractiveness and men to order the women in order of attractiveness. And then they matched them all together and they more or less fitted. So in a way, you know, we, we, we spend all this time talking about, oh, I want someone with a nice personality. I want someone, you know who's good at sports or et cetera. But research consistently suggests that, yes, you're going to choose someone on these other reasons, but your primary reason is how attractive they are. And that overrides most other things. And, of course, we, you know, we, in a way, that makes us sound very shallow. However, in a way, you know, I, I talk about, you know, the attractiveness... Um, you know, the attractiveness, um, health side, and it's two sides of the same old envelope. You know, um, we're hardwired to be attracted to people who have grown well. You know, Alpha Linney did some work on symmetry. Yeah, okay, that's wonderful. And But there's more to it than that. And, you know, they even did this study where they took young children 
I think it was uh, was 12-month-old children initially. They placed these children on mother's laps and put images that they could look at, and the children consistently looked at the more attractive face. Well, okay, you had to define what, well, how, who defined what the more attractive face was. Well, that's another story. However, they were so impressed they did it with six-month-old children, and these children can only just focus. So they've not really got many... Great concepts, you know, they've not been um, targeted by advertising or, you know, social cues or whatever. And these individuals were still able to choose the more attractive face. And again, then when you look at the partners, you tend to see they line up. And I've always felt that your facial form is the CV of your health. You're displaying with your face that you're healthy. And that's then when a someone finds you attractive, that whole attractiveness is health. So, and of course, this is, it's a very controversial subject. You know, I, I, not so much now. Now everyone that walks into my clinic knows just who I am and what we do. But if I go back to 10 years before we'd really got going, people would walk here thinking that, walk in, thinking that somehow I was an alternative to fixed braces. And you were going to have this treatment or that treatment. Both of them were like fixed braces. They did something to you. And parents would come in with their children and they would laugh at how crooked their teeth were. However, if I mentioned that I didn't think their facial development had gone perfectly well, I could have a sense of humor failure. From the same person that was laughing how crooked their child's teeth were. And that, I you know, and I can understand, it's just, it's an emotive issue. How you look is so emotive. And I think in a way that's held back what I do, because a lot of people have looked at my results. I can remember a couple of professionals who said, well, you're doing no more than getting, making pretty faces. I guess that's what all I am doing. It is true that there's a disconnect there between, um, you know, we, we see, you know, crooked dental arches and then it's not well known that you know the dental arch sits in two bones in in the craniofacial craniofacial system and that this that there are influences on these on these bones that um you know that can have a a a, an effect on the outcome of you know whether a, a child developed crooked teeth now you you mentioned that your your father talked about this early and you know he um you know, he, he was very kind or he is very kind of tuned into this idea that the face and the, the cranial facial form, where did that come from? So like, where, where was which, he? Which element? Well, like, where did he, what, you know, because this, this idea isn't very well known. So no, where how did, did it develop? Yeah. How did it develop? So I think that let's go back in time. Let's go back. So my father can remember where he was in a car as a young boy when his father told him that he'd just bought the book of Western Price's book. And that influenced my grandfather. And my grandfather was taught by um, Harold Chapman. And they were taught that at four years old, if you didn't have four to five, I've discussed it with my father, um, if you didn't have enough spaces between all of the incisors. So all of the front teeth should have about well, enough space for half a crown that is about two millimeters. 
that if you didn't have that much space, you were going to get problems in the future. So my father would routinely widen people's dental arches. <clears throat> they had a program, um, three to four months of whitening, three to four months of full-time retention, three to four months of nighttime retention, let go. And in that era, it was often enough to change the path someone was going on so they didn't need any form of, um, they were fine, they were fixed, they were cured, effectively. They went on to have perfectly straight teeth. That, that was the theory or the idea behind it. Now, my father was, uh, orthodontics was his favorite subject, but he wanted to be a surgeon. He went on to East Grinstead and he was working his way up through East Grinstead, but struggling with the exams because he was never an exam man. <clears throat> Neither was I. And his, his father then had a heart attack, so he went back to take over from his father. And what he noticed was that his father had been doing this expansion thing. Well, of course, dad was in the era where we were told that this expansion really doesn't work. Don't bother, it relapses. Anyway, my grandfather had kept good records. My father then looks at his records and, you know, takes out a measuring device. And, you know, we spend a lot of time with measuring devices and with models, just, you know, measuring about. And so he was measuring that intermolar width. Yeah? And... He noticed that in most individuals, the relapse, the relapse had occurred, but not quite as much relapse as he would have expected. You know, he was taught that it will all go back, and yet it was only going back a percentage. Some individuals were completely stable, and some had widened even further. Now, that was an interesting subgroup, and he then set out to kind of think why. And of course, he came to the conclusion that if you make enough space for the tongue and the individual then puts the tongue on the roof of the mouth, it works. He then started thinking about open mouth postures and just looking at faces. And the penny just dropped in mind. And I think that it's so easy. Once someone has had an idea and come to an observation, it's so easy to say, oh, well, that was obvious. But, you know, he wasn't. Remember in the days that other people had said this before. I mean, you've got Catelyn or Caitlin um, was an artist going around North America in the late 1800s. And he, you know, wrote the book, um, what did it, Shut Your Mouth, Save Your Life, I think it was. So, and he was coming to these conclusions because what he saw was the Native Americans and the um, Europeans coming in. And he was just staggered how different these groups were and why these groups were different. And he was, he was an artist. He was spending a lot of time painting these Native Americans. So, and of course, Dad, Dad really, it wasn't as easy to get access to these people at the time as it is now. And of course, Dad really came to conclusions by himself on his own. And then he came up with ideas to fix it. And that's where he's been really unique because I don't see many, if any, people around the world with a couple of exceptions, really getting consistent improvements in facial form. You know, there's a few out there, but consistent and dramatic, no, very few people. And that's what my father started to do. But of course, he was doing this 20, 30 years ago. And it was easier 20, 30 years ago. You know, you go back to the time of my grandfather, all you had to do is a quick burst of expansion, and that would often cure people for life. Well, in, you know, 
when I was a school kid and I walked along the um, street pavement at school with my hands in my pocket, you know, lolling around, I could get a smack around the back of the head. You know, some teacher would come around and just clip you around the ear and you go, Mew, hands out your pockets, stand up straight, hands behind your back. And of course, the fear of that having again meant that whenever you thought you might be in an error or a teacher was, you stood up straight, mouth cut. But what would happen to a teacher who did that now? Probably be suspended. I mean, times have certainly changed, and the um, you mentioned there was a little bit easier in your grandfather's time. You know, perhaps is, do, are you suggesting maybe that um, you know the the malocclusions are getting worse or oh, more? I think so. I think so. I think it's notably, notably getting worse. So this is, this is we're talking about two generations here. So I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, certainly in my lifetime, you know, I remember going to primary school, and there was probably. Uh, two people in my primary year that had um, braces. Uh, and then as going through high school, you know, probably becoming a little bit more prevalent, maybe up to 10 in, in a bigger year. Uh, now it's become much, much more prevalent. So we're talking about a space of, you know, 30 years here. Hmm. Now, the counter argument is that people just know it's available. Exactly. Now, exactly. Yeah, that, that is a counter argument. You know, we didn't have this available. We do now. You know, but and it, it's difficult because people aren't, it's not really entered the mind of the profession that this might be increasing. So no one's really trying to do a sort of re- reproducing cohorts to see if it's increased. Mm. Um, my, my observation is it's increased massively, massively. I mean, I, I've found the same thing in patients, you know, just, in, you know, looking at our pediatric patients, it's, it's, it's very, very rare to see a, a well-forming dental arch now, um, you know, that have, that haven't had, um, any kind of intervention or so forth, but, but this, there's a larger trend here, isn't there? Because I remember going to an anthropological conference, um, and it, it was kind of my, my first real opening to, to diving deep into what um, you know anthropologists do, and there was a lot of dental focus there. And I remember there was a um, there was a lecture by Robert Coricini, um, and he discussed you know the hundreds of papers he looked at, and the the over the the very much um, you know overarching uh, consensus of the the conference is that these malocclusions don't happen. Um, when you go back not very far in, in the dental arch, and once you go past 12 to 14,000 years, which isn't very long no, in the record. No, it's an evolutionary blink of the eye, really. It is an absolute blink of the eye, and it, it just it literally doesn't happen. They don't find them. And so when you look at this, when you take out, you know, we've just talked about two or three generations, when you start to go back, you know, further, you know, you start mm. to see that this trend is happening quite alarming. In, oh, in terms, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Very, it's, it's really quite worrying what we're seeing because, of course, it's, it's not just malocclusion. You know, if you, you allow me to philosophize on my views and opinions here, you know, as a scientist should be able to do. I think, I strongly think that sleep apnea, um, jaw joint problems, forward head posture, um, and quite a few of the ENT problems are all related the same thing so they're all along with malocclusion symptoms of faces that don't grow well 
and the, I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence coming out to to confirm that now. Um, it hasn't been around for a while, but I mean, recently there was um, studies published at Stanford talking about the um, the the flow of um, nasal nasal air and the relation to the the mag- maxillary arch. But Mike, let's talk about. So we've we've talked about um kind of your you know you had this opening as, as a child and we've got this mm. this kind of trend towards you know in in human um the human species in general what were your early perceptions in what we were seeing in um in, in with orthodontic treatment because the orthodontic speciality is a very very um you know kind of focused and and difficult speciality uh to learn for people that aren't familiar with what an orthodontist learned it's it's a very very um you know kind of it, it's very mechanical it's very you know there's a lot, lots of calculations what were your perceptions of this in terms of what you were seeing in terms of your um your training and what you're seeing in patients okay so I, I, so I, so my first introduction to, to conventional orthodontics, we had a little bit at university, but when I, it really was a, here's how to refer patients to us and don't do this. That was clearly the training you got at university was just like nonsensical. It was around, this is too difficult for you, pass it on to us. Then I, when I, in two, 1997, I started to work one day a week with my father. And then the rest of the time, I got a job working for a factory orthodontist doing national health orthodontics. And he had a clinic where he just took on as many patients as you could in the local area, took on quite a few young dentists to do the donkey work. He would do the treatment planning and we would just have a sort of factory orthodontic shop where you got five minutes per patient. You had quite a few staff, quite a good team around you. And you, you could work that five, five minutes a patient, you know, the national health people. Yeah, we will accept that. And you could more or less get the job done in five, you know, see one patient for five minutes, 30 minutes for putting all the brackets on. And it, it was a hard-paced job, but clearly I, I treated – I worked there for, what, three years, four years? And I treated thousands of patients. And that gave me great experience in, you know, what orthodontics does. And what, what first of all got, got me is um, some, some cases you would simply put – you put the brackets in the mouth. You'd put a very light wiring. The patients would go away, maybe miss an appointment or two – come back, and the dental relationship, the way the teeth were, was absolutely perfect. You really thought you were the, oh, the mahuna of orthodontics. You had something special in you. And, of course, the, this is the problem with young orthodontists, I see, because they start putting brackets and everything goes well, and they think they're absolutely just the absolute dog's mahunas, and they don't want to listen to anything. And they're taught at university that this is the latest technique. It's better than all the previous techniques. And finally, we've found the answer, which I'll come back to that issue. Anyway, I then found that there was about, that was about 10, maybe slightly 15% of the the people. Then there was this other 20 to 30% of cases that just never went well. 
didn't matter what you did to these people. And it wasn't always easy to predict who. I think I'd be better now. But it just, they didn't go well, and they their faces looked worse. And, you know, it was quite obvious sometimes. And, you know, whatever you did, the teeth never came together. You'd get asymmetries. It was all going, it just wasn't going well. And... You know, it, 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 it fascinated me, but it also fascinated me. Luckily, the guy I was working for was very non-extraction, so he wasn't taking many teeth out. You know, I worry where we're holding teeth out of their balance zone at the end with these appliances, and clearly I worry about that issue. Pan globally, all these people who are their retainers are keeping their teeth straight, but they're holding their teeth out of their balance zone, which I, I just worry about. I don't think there's really easy answers for that. However, he was more ethical. And then I went back to university. So I went to Denmark. And of course, Denmark, well, is a very much more outside culture, tougher food, and generally facial growth was good. I remember I had one or two patients in my dental training that I thought, well, they're not growing well, that's not going well. Apart from that, much better response with treatment. Of course, you know, I, I didn't do, we, we did about sort of 50, 100 patients. That was it at university. It wasn't a huge amount. But you looked into great more detail with them. But it was the education I felt was fascinating because till that point, I educated myself. You know, I got some books. Yeah, I, I was read widely, but I was working for an orthodontist and were learning on the job. But now I went back to Denmark, you know, at Aarhus, the one of the top five orthodontic training programs on the planet, if not the best one for growth and development. You know, this was the the university that, where they took the gold standard for the European Erasmus um, certification. So, you know, it, it was a great university and they were really hot on their growth. But there was a lack of this coordinated thinking. You know, I, I was asking questions. I asked more than 50% of the questions asked. Several times I turned around to my colleagues um, and I said to them, look, guys, do you mind? I'm asking so many questions. And I paused for a second and one of them said, Mike, but you asked the right questions. And everyone seemed to agree. And one said, they said no, Mike, carry on. You, you, you know, it's really helpful. You're asking all the questions we'd not thought of. But in a way, because I had a central structure, I, under, I understood what, you know, I, I had a core, core belief. I mean, there is no core belief in orthodontics. The core belief in orthodontics are teeth are crooked. We're going to make them straight. That's not a core belief. And when you look at orthodontics, you know, what we did um, in our training was we, we made a problem list. So we said, you know, you've got this, you've got this, you've got this, and this, and this. And then we tried to make some sort of um, integration of the problems with the solutions you were going to present. Well, that is treating symptomatically. You're treating symptoms. You, you, you're admitting you're treating symptoms. And whenever I tried to ask causative questions, it came to go nowhere. And that's when I realized that the key to all of this was etiology, the why. Why are teeth crooked? You know, people, I said, why are teeth crooked? And people go, oh, well, because there's not enough space for the teeth. Uh, but why? Oh, the jaw's too big or the teeth are too large. But why? And, you know, the, 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 people hadn't really thought 
that far back. All the risks of permanent retention, all that faces might downswing during treatment because of treatment, possibly. It, you know, and it was very mechanical. But, but Beauty Melson had done her mechanics beautifully. You know, she had taken the sort of Newtonian physics as applied to orthodontics, which Charlie Burston had really perfected, and she really worked it well. So we were doing clever mechanics. We never considered the forces of the tongue or the lips or the cheeks, which in retrospect was <sighs> confounded the whole science they were talking about. They made all the science they were talking about just silly. However, such is life. And, you know, there were, there were lovely people, the Danish. They really were lovely. And they, they taught me what they want. I didn't want to rock the boat too much. I, I sat there and I listened. But sometimes I felt a little bit like Gorbachev. Because, you know, here's a man who had come up through the Russian ranks knowing one day he was going to try and change. You know, he didn't really believe what he was doing. And I went through the ranks quietly in the back of my mind saying, I know that a load of what I'm being taught is nonsense and I'm not really going to do any of this. I'm on a three-year programme in Denmark that it was hard. It was a really hard programme. Yeah, I was in, and the number of nights I spent all through the night, I had some cushions beside my desk in my office and I'd lie them out, have a power nap, get back on, carry on going. You know, that was that type of university it was. You know, it really restricted your social life there in Denmark. But in general, I just felt that I was on some sort of apprenticeship to learn how to move teeth. And I think that's what too much of orthodontics is. You know, I, I had a lecture the other day, one of these sort of evening lectures we have um, that, you know, all online now, so I... I I attend more than I normally would. And it was someone talking about aligners. And she was an orthodontist. And she heard, she got her the, the, her award, award, you know, the, the, the award for the best student of the year. And she was, you know, down the line, trying to do the right thing, or, you know, following the, the rules. And what she was saying, she was saying the importance, the half the thing was about what the patient wants, where they wanted that tooth, how they wanted their smile to look. And, you know, I reflected after the lecture, the whole thing was about putting the teeth wherever the patient wanted them. So in a way, orthodontics or her version of orthodontics, which I think is what many people are doing now, is just trying to find out how the patient wants their teeth to be arranged and doing that. And that's, that's odd in medicine. You know, medicine, we don't come up and say, well, so what's your aesthetic requirements for the position of your teeth? And then we're going to do it. No concept of the, the why they're crooked, what the health implications of doing this, the health implications of holding the teeth out of the balance zone, the fact that the teeth are in a balance between the lips and the tongue. None of this seemed to be considered. When you... Um... You know, as a, as a brief way to kind of give people an overview of uh, the, you know, the theory in orthodontics, obviously, because it's a very heavy mechanical, um, you know, you, you mentioned Newtonian physics. Um, but mm. the the foundations, you know, the, would you say they're based in angle? Um, would you say that's or Okay. If you go back to the middle of the 1900s or slightly before the middle of the 1900s, you've got people like, um, Frankel in East Germany, 
You've got um, Planus in Spain, but of course um, he's in um, Franco, Spain. So it's a little bit difficult. You know, we're not, you know, we forget even not that long ago, we had really difficult, we didn't have the European Union. We didn't, lack of integration. My father actually went to travel to see Franco in East Europe. He crossed the Iron Curtain to do that. And thinking it would be a nice jolly, he took my pregnant mother with him. Well, they they turn up to this and um, the border control and they land they you know in the airport and they put him in some Nissan hut for the night. They just put them in the Nissan hut and said, "Oh, you wait here. Let them out the next day." And there's one chair, and my father let my mother sit on the chair, and she's pregnant with me. So I guess that means one day I'll be the oldest person who crossed over to see Frankel. <laughs> However. The, um, and there's also Andresen in um, Sweden, and um, I've probably forgotten a few really important names here. But, however, you had these various different charismatic individuals. Now, let's just take Angle and Frankel. Well, Frankel was making these appliances that held the lips and cheeks back, huh? And if you use the lips and cheeks, it would be uncomfortable. So not only would it change the balance zone so the teeth became straight, but also it would inhibit the use of the muscles so it would train you and hopefully gain a permanent change in you. Angle was taking a mechanical perspective of forcing the teeth into position. Okay? So now you think about it. You've got either you're going to take young Johnny and put a, this painful appliance in his mouth that's going to, to cause the, treat the causes of the symptom, or you're going to physically move the teeth into the right position, mechanically. Well, okay, you've got parents who are paying to have the teeth straight. That's their end goal. And also, you, if you're trying to make a business based on uncooperative children, then avoid the complex appliance. So who's won? Well, angle, clearly, because it's the fixed braces. Fixed braces are everywhere. I had a patient from Berlin recently, and he could not find anyone in Berlin or the surrounding areas who did frankel appliances. And they're going to show even, you know, okay, that's Berlin a bit north of where Frankel was, but even in the cat country where Frankel came up with his appliances, it's hard to find anyone who does it. And yet, fixed braces are two a penny everywhere. So we've, you know, we've selected to make the teeth straight, push them into a position where they look nice. Do you think, um, you know, so that was early in the, the 20th century, do you think there are any um, other kind of pivotal, um, you know, influence or studies that, that really could, because you know, prob- the, um, the mechanisms we use it today popped up in the 50s and 60s. That'd be about right. Well, I think the, the, the big thing that changed fixed braces was um, the work of Andrews with the pre-adjusted bracket. So what Andrews did was, so previous to Andrews, you put the same type of bracket on every tooth. The thing you stick to the tooth was identical. Well, if you've got front teeth or big fat canine teeth, well, clearly you want the wire set further out. And you've got little things like your little laterals, tooth number two, you're going to read the wire set further in. 
So there was an enormous amount of wire bending that had to be done. And of course, you only had steel wires. So if you had to make a significant move in a tooth, you couldn't just put the wire in because it was too solid. So you needed to take the wire up, make a little loop, come back down again, through that tooth, go up again, make a little loop, come down again to the next tooth. And that then gave a little bit more flexibility to the wire. So it wasn't too aggressive and harsh on a single tooth. Now, that was a real skill to bend those wires. And I've heard, I've heard tales from these old wire benders. I remember someone telling me that they had a technician in this one clinic that would do all the prep, preparation, the, wire, the wires. So they, they had a standard treatment, standard kind of design, and most mouths are quite similar. So she would make wires in advance. And she could bend these wires up in five minutes, put one down, and it would sit perfectly on top of the previous one she'd done. And she'd made a stack of them, and they looked identical. I mean, gifted, gifted. Anyway, along terms Andrews, along comes Andrews. Andrews realised that most canines are this, you know, X thickness. Most laterals, tooth number two, are Y thickness. And most centrals, front tooth, are Z thickness. So why don't we simply make the brackets different for each individual tooth? Then you put a set brackets on and you put a straight wire through. So no bending required. And of course, then we had these nighti, these super flexible wires turn up. And all of a sudden, orthodontists just took off. And of course, at the time, orthodontists suddenly started making a lot of money because clearly now you could do the same thing in a much faster space of time. People are starting to worry about their aesthetics more. So you're making more money and you're getting more patience. Then everyone wants to get into orthodontics all of a sudden. It had been a one-year postgraduate master's. All of a sudden, it becomes a three-year postgraduate master's, and you need to get your fellowship of dentistry to get into it. I mean, crazy. You know, you needed your fellowship to go into surgery previously. So all of a sudden, the brightest are going in to do orthodontics. And this is one of my problems. One of my problems is when you get the brightest, you have a bias towards calculators and photocopiers. So those people who are human calculators and photocopiers, well, they do very well with exams. And when you set a very high exam as a barrier to entry because there's something to be desired, like a lot of money to be made, then you tend to find you will selectively get a lot of photocopiers and calculators. And these people are brilliant at taking in information. Literally, you know, photographic minds, they absorb it all. But he who absorbs all this information isn't going to think about what they've learned as much. They're not really trying to understand that information. And I think, and then, then you know, then you defend what you've learned. And you will defend what you've learned to the hilt because that's what you learn and you learned it. You know, it's only idiots like me who try and make, who struggle to learn it, who try and gain it, get that information by making a central philosophy that I can hang the information on. Because I need that. I need a central philosophy to hang the information on. I'm, I'm a crazy dyslexic. You know, you, 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 you need to memory hook things. So you need to make a central philosophy that makes sense. You can't have this sort of Bible of instructions. 
And that's what I worry too much with orthodontics. We have some Bible of instructions, and it's become very much more a religion than a science. You know, where do you have a science where, you know, the wrong people aren't allowed to speak? You know, you're the wrong person for this conference. I'm, you know, where, where do you have things like people are vetted? You know, you don't have vetting going on in a science. Anyway, Steve, by the way, I noticed we're getting quite a lot of questions arrive. I didn't know if you wanted to tackle any at some point. I think we will pull because we've kind of, I was just thinking, you know, we've kind of spent 40 minutes on the, um, on the, the, the philosophy and, and a little bit of the background. Yeah. I, I was, I was thinking that we, we, we will definitely move into a little bit more of the, you know, what we see in the mouth, um, you know, what, what parents are experiencing. You, you're, you're a father yourself. So you're experiencing yeah. this firsthand. Um, <laughs> in, in, uh, I've got two young children. Now I'm seeing my, my son's dental arch is, is, is primary dental. How arch. old is your son now? He's two and a half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so. Well, I think my, my early entry point is that, you know, with that, I think that most myofunctional therapy couldn't be summed up or we can be graphed, you know, the low lying fruit. What do you want to do to get the most buck for your myotherapy? Eat with your mouth shut. Lips together. Lips together when you're eating. Get your kids. So at that age, you know, this is the age where habits can become lifelong habits. You know, you can ingrain a habit for the rest of your life. And the most best one is elbows off the table, sit up straight, eat with your mouth shut. That's huge. The difference between doing that and not doing that are just huge. But I know it's not easy. That's what I've learned. It's not easy getting these things done. You know, it's easy to say it, but not saying, you know, I've got the, the, the I, I've got, you know, I, at least I have the backup. I've, I've got a clinic designed to make these appliances, you know. I, I, I laugh sometimes. You know, I've, I remember coming back, oh, absolutely pie-eyed drunk, trying to get a brace in for Zarina before she goes to bed. And I'm swearing at this brace and thinking, well, remember, Mike, you designed this brace. <laughs> if you can't get this into someone's mouth at this in a dark room, then who can? You know, spare of thought. But it, it's another, when you start actually having to do it, you realise that it's on your children, it's taught me a lot. You know, it's made me a better practitioner by having children and trying to influence their growth. You, you really, I mean, as parents, you really do experience how difficult it is. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, this whole idea of altering habits and altering, you know, and even sleep habits, you know, it's, yeah. it's you know, I, the when, I mean, because the, the big, um, the, the big thing that I'm, uh, talking to patients a lot is is the mouth breathing and trying to redirect that. Yeah. But the yeah, yeah. um, you know, the the application of getting a habit like that to change is incredibly difficult. So you mm. you really have to kind of feel for for parents out there that this is a problem that's it's not easy, is it? It, it really is. No, something it's not easy. I mean, I think the one that has worked a couple of times. I've seen some examples where, and from four years old, I've got people chewing gum, and I've seen some stunning results from that. You know, but from four years old, I highly recommend everyone starts taking decent quality side lateral photographs of their children every year. I, I, I think that should be if any dentist is watching this, that should be mandatory. If you're a dentist, seeing growing patients from four years old 
or above, take an annual lateral photograph. Like that's a minimum. You know, if you hear me here, and I ever run into you and I hear you haven't done that, then the minimum standard of care. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the the growth and development. So we've mentioned, you know, a two and a half year old and, and a four year old. So what's can you describe to the audience what's happening in a four year old's mouth that that we should be thinking about the side of their face and, and what are the uh, what are the factors influencing it? Well, okay, so we, we, clearly this is getting on to what causes craniofacial dystrophy and then what goes on. So, you know, what we've done is we've, we've thought hard about this. We've come up with this term craniofacial dystrophy because no one's nailed the fact that there's an underlying problem. So that's what I realised um, some years ago. I said, you know, having understood that we've got to understand what causes the problem, we then have to understand the pathological process and why these things start going wrong. Okay, so if you've got a two and a half year old, what could have gone wrong? Well, um, the, the, the two biggest things are, of course, um, the toughness of the diet and the oral posture. Okay. Now, I, you know, I, 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 I would bow to you on the constituents of the diets, the things in diets that might be affecting these things. It's not my area. I, I'd, I'd love to get some, some good evidence and know what to recommend to people. It's not my area. However, it seems that disruptions and things like breastfeeding, okay? Now, and more and more I'm looking at this, I'm thinking we're needing exclusive breastfeeding for prolonged periods of time. So that means nothing but breastfeeding. And it, as soon as you start adding non-breast, anything but the breast, that's where the rot sets in. And you, you would be really good. I mean, I mean, we breastfed both till what, me? Didn't do any breastfeeding, but where are we that are breastfed for 14 months for both of them? And it was pretty near exclusive till about six to eight months. I was trying to hold back, but clearly um, that didn't happen. And then the, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's then all these nasal congestion. I, I see so many kids getting blocked noses at young ages. Just it seems almost normal to have a fundamentally blocked nose in the first year of life to the point where you where it may last one or more days. Now, what are you going to do? Because either you die or you start breathing through your, your, your mouth. And when lowering your tongue and opening your mouth is linked, neurally linked to such a panic that you would have died otherwise. That's a big learner. That's a lesson learner. When we're talking about you can't gain habits, you can gain an open mouth posture pretty easy. Just getting a blocked nose. And my worry is that this is when kids are actually learning to walk. They're learning to walk and they've got a blocked nose. And this is, you know, how's that impacting someone's lifelong progression? I noticed in my, my daughter, who's now one, she had a... Um... She hasn't been sick very often. She she had a cold, um, and she, she's got um, she was exclusive nasal before that. But I noticed in that time, she, you could see that she went to the mouth, and it it was a, a process 
to push her back to the nose once the day. It was about a day of the bad nasal congestion, and then she had to kind of sniffle through it. But we had to. She was breastfeeding at the time. We had to kind of take her through a process in order to get back to nasal breathing, and it really kind of stuck me. I was like, well, if you don't really, you know, think about that and um, you know make a concerted effort to um, influence the child to breathe through the nose again, like that's potentially you know, habit form, as you say, it's really interesting, the posture and, and walking connection. I think that's a, a, re- a really important point. Yeah. So what would you say for, for parents out there? Cause this is a really common problem. What would you say for kids with nasal congestion? Uh, how would you tell parents in young kids? Cause you know, obviously young kids are hard to intervene in. What would you say to parents in terms of a strategy as to what, you know, you've done with your kids at home, but also, um, you know how you educate your your patients. How do you how do we get kids br- getting back to breathing through the nose? Okay, well, breast is best. Of course, if you've got a, a, a mouthful of breast in your mouth, you're not going to mouth breathe, and that is the single best thing to change your habits. Um, I, I had an interesting experience with number two, Zarina, when. She was, um, she got onto a dummy. I mean, I mean, clearly, you know, it wasn't my choice, but she got a dummy. We, I then forced her off the dummy at about 18 months, two years, uh, maybe a little bit later, I think. Um, and what I noticed was she was a much better at nasally breathing when she had the dummy. But pacifier, as you would call it in the US and other places, but, you know, we would call it a dummy. So the, the pacifier forced her to nasally breathe. And that was quite counterintuitive. And then when I think about research using pacifiers, maybe that's why breastfeeding or pacifiers or bottle feeding, they don't show up. You know, I'd love these to show really good black and white answers, and they don't. And I think it's just a little bit more confounded and complicated than that, where the way that if you use a um, pacifier, it's going to force nasal breathing, which is actually beneficial. And that's one of the reasons you, in this area, you don't see the research coming up quite as prompts as I would like it to. So I, it's just a little bit more complicated. And, you know, I, I hate that term, we need more research, but we do in this area. Well, we need some research. I think that people who have been coming this raised some very interesting angles. But before we really understood that malocclusion is a symptom of something else, it means a lot of the designs of the studies we had before don't hold up the light as well. Mike, Frederick has asked, uh, you know, you mentioned six months, but so he's asked specifically how long do you think you should breastfeed and when you can start to introduce food and what can you start to introduce? How do you feel about the baby-led weaning program? Oh, yeah, I'm very, very pro baby-led weaning. You know, I think that that's excellent. I think that if... So my, my suggestion, the thoughts on this are, trying to piece things together, is, well, when babies reach out, grab something, they will inevitably put it in their mouth. And this is going to happen from about six to eight months. Now, at that point, you could start introducing them food as a novelty item. Okay, so what you do is you get carrot sticks, you get, you know, you follow the baby-led weaning principles. I'm no expert on it. But in a general rule, you cut the slices up so they're one and a half times, which is this 
one and a half times the size of the baby's palm, so that if they pick something up, it is likely to stick out one side. And you then leave them, and what you do is you make, so whenever you're making the veg for your meal, you cut some of the same veg, you either don't cook it at all, or you very lightly parboil it, and you leave that in front of baby. You just put a pile in front of baby. So the baby can identify that you're eating the same thing, which is important. And it's not force fed this stuff. The stuff's there on the plate for what it wants to do. It can throw it on the floor. It can have a nibble. You're not really worried if the child is going to get any nutrition. That's not your objective at this point. And, you know, I've heard constantly hearing people back, go, oh, we tried baby led waning, but the baby wasn't eating enough. Sorry, they've got the breast. They're going to take full nutrition from breast for a long time. And food is only a novelty item to have fun with. And that gets you the right attitude to food. And it's going to be solid bits of food that you actually have to chew. You know, you're not, you this time is you're not trying to gain your calorific loading for a child through a hand food. You know, that's, that's breast. You know, the breast can survive, provide everything you need. This is just some fun, getting used to food. And then you gently provide more and more food. Everyone's going to be different, but you follow the principles of baby led weaning. You try and give tough stuff. And then you check the nappy because nappies are going to tell you how much is actually getting through. And if you're a breastfed baby, you can very clearly see what didn't come out of the breast, can come through the breast. And when you feel there's enough of that, you can then start cutting down on breast and moving further across. But I would delay that for as long as possible, you know, but in 10 to 14 months if possible, before you're really in significantly increasing the amount of um, non-solid, well, you're significantly relaxed, sorry, the, the breast. But remember, it, it, I'm not an expert on this area. Yeah, I mean, looking at the World Health Organization. I have to say after every comment these days. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it, you know, but we these things we know these things relate to um you know jaw development so it's 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 good to kind of have a general guideline and obviously people yeah. will go to their professionals yeah. for their for yeah. um their opinions and so forth okay and so look, look also with, with with young children and i did this myself uh, the first thing that i did with children is really trying to reduce the potential of allergies so it's the other thing you re- i really tr- so we had all the windows open for the first couple of months and um the heating on because I just wanted to make sure it was summer as well. So, and there are some issues, you, you know, we, we, I talk about you shouldn't, um, or the Butego with Pat McEwen makes a point that you shouldn't have the radiator on and the window open because that can really dry your room out and your nasal passages. However, just getting fresh air in, I thought was really important when the kids were young and trying to, and I had my leaf a day complex. So whenever we went out, I would take a random leaf from a bush and put it in my child's hand. And my thoughts behind that, you're just building up bacterial loading from the grasses and trees, which is where we miss too much bacterial loading these days. It's a good point in terms of yeah, the, the connection between the immune system and, you know, because obviously, you know, a very, very significant aspect of um, the immune system is housed in the in the nasal sinuses. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
really what are we and I, I think there's you know the research coming out suggesting that if you breathe through your nose it reduces allergies if you breathe through your mouth it increases allergies because all of these things have to be presented in the right way so if you breathe in let's say you have a certain allergen allergen a if you breathe in allergen a through your mouth it turns up in the body and the body goes what the hell's this Never seen this stuff before. There's no report on allergy A. Let's set up a bad reaction to this one. Whereas if it comes to your nose, it gets processed. It gets registered. And people say, well, you breathed it in. Well, yeah, clearly this is stuff that exists in our atmosphere. Well, we'll note it down as possibly existing in the atmosphere. Don't take too much notice of this. It's around. Yeah, the, the understanding between um, yeah, the, the immune system and respiration you know, through the nasal sinus is is pretty well established now what's the connection can you explain the connection as a child's growing to breathing through the nose and developing that that bone that maxilla the up the upper jaw it's in what respect to well so we've said that that nasal breathing is important why is nasal breathing physically important for a child for their jaw to develop well okay you can breathe through your nose or you can breathe through your mouth and if you're breathing through your mouth then your tongue's not on the roof of your mouth Point blank. And having your tongue on the roof of the mouth is vital to growth and development of the um, maxillary complex, I believe. I think all the evidence says this. But So it's vital that you have a patent nasal airway and you use it. There are two types of people who have their mouths open. Ones who are actually breathing through their mouth and the other ones who are actually breathing through their nose but their mouths open. And so... Just where the air goes is not that important. It's whether the tongue is on the roof of the mouth and the mouth's closed. Because then the tongue is going to be occupying its space. You know, I often say it's a little bit like, you know, you see people with a great big tumour in their bone. And this is a solid tumour that's sort of grown out here. And when you actually open the tumour up, it's just full of fluid. And what's happened is this cyst has gently expanded but it's got very little pressure, and yet it's carried this bone growth all the way out here. Well, if you have your tongue sealed in your mouth with your teeth together and your lips together all the time, your tongue will gently expand this area. And that's how the face should grow. And that's and you see these maxillas of ancestors. They're huge, great big um, maxillas. It's a... Um... I mean, the tongue's a, 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 it's a difficult, you know, organ to kind of understand, you know, when you really look oh, at yeah. it. And it, it. Yes. It, it is something that, um, you know, it, it, so in my dental training, I, we didn't get a lot of kind of functional um, understanding of the tongue, you know, besides, you know, what it generally does. And then there does seem to be this this whole world around, you know, what how important this tongue is. And we'll really, really jump into that. Mm. So, we're seeing we've discussed this kind of earlier stage of, of um, childhood growth and development. Um, a lot of parents now have have found that you know they weren't quite you know cued into to exactly what was really influential to grow their dental arch, and they're finding now at four and five you know when when the um, the primate dentition um, you know is is all erupted that they're noticing issues. Can you describe some of the you know the, the the, the signpost um, symptoms that 
parents will see in a four to five-year-old that potentially the growth isn't quite heading well, where it should yeah. be. Go back to Harold Chapman. If your child is four to five years old and there are not large gaps between all of the upper incisors, they are going to have problems in the future, in my opinion. And, you know, that's a sign to look out for. And that's a worrying sign. You know, what happens to me frequently is in those cases that aren't quite as severe, parents come in at 10 or maybe younger, sort of 8 to 10, and they said, but the teeth were so lovely in uh, the baby teeth. The baby teeth were perfectly straight without gaps or anything. It looked beautiful. They've got no idea that that's completely um, abnormal. The, in the baby teeth, you should have huge, great big gaps. The teeth should be well worn down. And you should have this big, broad smile. That is normal. That's what you should want to expect. And if you've got, you know, no gaps between the baby teeth, you've got big problems coming on. Because the next teeth come in crooked. And remember, these are only, these are signs Crooked teeth, well, I mean, yes, I'm an orthodontist. I'm supposed to care about crooked teeth, but, you know, I care about faces. The way faces grow and the impact on health from a well-architectured, a face with good architecture works well, and all the functions associated with that face work well. Can you describe some of the patterns we see in kids that are, so you mentioned pacifiers and so w what happens to the bite? And I'm seeing a lot of um, primate dentitions now with malocclusions as yeah. well. Have you noticed a, an uptick in that? Oh, yeah. I've noticed an uptick in the, the severity of everything. You know, I think this affects what my father was doing because, you know, my father was getting really good results in the 60s, 70s and 80s and I think they started to deteriorate in the late 90s, and because he was doing the same thing. And the ground's now moving. As I said, you know, if I was walking down the at school, someone would slap me around the back of the head. Then, of course, I we had tougher food. You know, we, the, the amount of added sugar in food is going, where are we with the screen? Is that the right way? Going up like that. Um, and it, it's just, it's crazy because every easy calorie you get you're going to need one less hard calorie unless you're going to put weight on now clearly a lot of people are putting weight on but for example so i could probably get 750 calories in here you know some cream marshmallows a bit of syrup nice hot chocolate couldn't touch that sort of stuff myself at the moment However, if I did that, that could be a quarter to a third of my calorific intake for the day. Now, if I'm going to take that many calories in with no masticatory effort, nothing, then I've reduced my masticatory effort for the day. And then that's very prevalent. And when you watch what, so, you know, so many kids these days, they're having a good chunk of their calorific intake is so easy that they haven't, don't have to chew at all. And that's reducing their overall masticatory effort for any given day. Then, of course, I'm watching them. There's no impetus. No one's even telling them to sit up straight, shut the mouth. 
they're, you know, everyone else is sitting with their mouths open. So the reflection, their mirroring is not helping. You know, all in all, it, it's, it's, there's a big issue. And it's getting worse. And, you know, when I give a lecture, I'll often show an image of Spandau Ballet. Now, I give this image because Spandau Ballet, they're now 60 years old. And I was told, and I, I remember saying this at a lecture, I said, at lecture, I said that, you know, we're now predicting that people who are six, 10% of people over 60 are going to die 10 years early because of sleep apnea and its consequences. And I think this is because they've got craniofacial dystrophy. You know, same thing that's causing malocclusion. So if you've got bad malocclusion and you're lacking several teeth, you are likely to go on and get sleep apnea. Now, I remember asking a couple of sleep, I saw a sleep guy on Monday, and he said, Mike, that is a gross underestimation. Gross underestimation. And now, when we wind that group back, the people who are 60 now didn't have as much crooked teeth, from my observation. So what's going to happen to the kids today when they're hitting 60? And how badly were they affected by these other comorbidities? It's looking very scary. And, you know, to the moment, the tide's turning. Well, of course it's going to turn. Because people are going to start asking, what the hell is going on? You know, people are dying young from sleep apnea. And a lot of people. And I think it's related to craniofacial dystrophy, crooked teeth, forward head postures, um, many ENT problems. And I think the list could go on so much that it sounds unbelievable. But for most people, no idea that this is even an issue. And it's getting worse and worse. It's getting worse at a, at a rapid rate. You know, when I was in dentistry, so I, I qualified in 93, a year late. And, um, uh, but but I, I had good times. And... They and we talked about sleep apnea was mentioned once, and it was called nocturnal positional sleep apnea. And these were the guys who were getting um, right side congestive heart failures, and their lungs would fill up with fluid at night. So you would prop them up so this didn't happen. Now that was the only time sleep apnea was mentioned, and that had nothing to do with the type of sleep apnea we recognise now. That was a cardiac condition. So basically. It was, it was flying below the radar when I qualified in 93. And we've got to the point now where more than 10% of the people over 60 are dying more than 10 years early because of sleep apnea and its consequences. I mean, whoa, that's caught up quickly, hasn't it? That's been a sea change. Where was sleep medicine? It didn't exist. There was nothing. You know, when I went to Denmark, I had to spend some time in, so I qualified from Denmark in 2004, so 10 years after I did my dentistry. And I remember nearer the end, I went to spend two weeks in a ENT department. And I came to London because it was easier to do that and make a holiday out of it. And I remember they had a sleep department at the London Hospital, and I asked to go and visit it, and I visited a nice Australian woman, actually, who was a nurse, OT, I think, was working, running that at the time. And I went and visited the unit for the, the neonates and the young kids to look at, they've got sleep apnea. 
And we all knew, you know, I've never seen this equipment. I've never seen this type of setup. Well, now every hospital's got a, um, a testing center for sleep apnea. And this is rapid. Don't you know, you, you stand back sometimes and look at these patterns where they're going. And there's going to be no way people will not know this. Because it's going to get to the point where, you know, you get up to 30% of 60-year-olds dying early from sleep apnea. And someone will turn around and go, well, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on? What's causing this? And, and that's what we need to know. And that's why we need to start asking those difficult questions. But unfortunately, that is going to require systematic change in medicine. And who wants systematic change in medicine? The the rise of sleep apnea, I think it, it, it does really kind of show the disconnect between the, the dental um, you know, faculty and the med- medical faculty because the the diagnose uh, probably the awareness of sleep apnea has has seen a, a rise due to dentists becoming switched on to to diagnose very simple to to see improper breathing patterns in the mouth and so forth but it, uh, it probably does highlight that you know th- this disconnect between what how dentists and uh, medical practitioners do uh, you know for, for the a large part of their career work separately. And, you know, mm. this idea that craniofacial form that is, you know, very much, you know, in, in, in the dental sphere is influencing how a child and then an adult breathes. It really does kind of, it, do you think, I mean, we talk about a multidisciplinary approach here and, mm. you know, it, it, it's something that is a challenge all over the world where, where practitioners are a bit isolated in that yeah. sense. Yes. I, I think, you know, there'd be, let me get right. So either I am right in what I'm saying, hook, line, and sinker, or I am completely crazy. You know, maybe I'm absolutely screw loose and I'm just remarkably stupid. Or I'm right. There's no, there's no two ways. You know, it has to be one or the other. Now, if I'm bot raving crazy, well, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm kind of enjoying my craziness, so I will continue. And if I'm right, well, then I very much need to continue. But when you stop and you reflect back on the implications of what I'm saying, it is going to bring so much more value to the dentist. It's going to, this craniofacial dystrophy is going to put the dentist in a real driving seat within the team that is going to have to re-evolve around this problem. Because, it, as I said, it's only going to get worse and worse until people start realising, you know, as I said, Steve, another way I start lectures... Mm-hmm is I talk about the fact that if I got run over tomorrow by a red London bus and I was to substant- gain an accident, I get run over and I get hit, I could have an injury that 100 years ago I had a 95% chance of dying from, that I now have a 95% chance of surviving from. And that has been an incredible change. You know, we've got um, 
the bact bacterial theory, you know, the knowledge of bacterium. We've got antibiotics, um, anesthetics, um, surgical techniques, and, you know, the list then goes on and on and on and on and on. And yeah, it's amazing what we can do. So with acute medicine, modern medicine has been brilliant. And I mean, it's important we don't forget that when we, when we can be critical of medicine at times. Because medicine really has got acute medicine down to a fine tea. However, if you have a chronic disease, and that's not a natural chronic disease where we're all going to die of something, then one could argue that modern medicine's failed because they can't cure the disease. And in most of those situations, you could relate a lifestyle challenge. So you could say that that disease is related, or those chronic diseases are related, from the dislocation of how we live today from how we used to live in the past. How we evolved to live and how we are living, so our lifestyle. So most chronic diseases are related to lifestyle challenges. And that means you. <laughs> you've got the lifestyle and you've got to change. You know, people don't like changing. You know, that's half the problem here. You know, that's half my work is trying to get people to change. You know, I, I frequently say to people, you know, if I could plug into the back of your cerebellum and I could sit there, I have a big computer processor and I bring it all up and I tweak some, you know, lines and I get some buttons and I'll go, right, you're cured. I'd press upload. You'd walk away with perfect posture and slowly over time, you would improve your structure. And that would become a reinforcing cycle, a virtuous cycle of change and you'd be better. If only it was that easy to change people. You know, if only it was, you know, we could upload a foreign language, some algebra understanding you know, that's not how things work. You know, life's about learning it for yourself. I think that's a good point, especially with health, is that, you know, a lot of patients, you know, that they go to practitioners thinking they're going to get this silver bullet or, you know, they're going to – and it's, it's just I've not disappointed like a few people. <laughs> and, and, and you make a good, um, you know, kind of separation there between acute and chronic disease mm. where acute medicine is based about this, you know, kind of – you know, a, a silver bullet as such, but a chronic disease or a chronic condition really does require an entire focus on how a lifestyle is is contributing to a condition. Would you say that craniofacial dysmorphia is a chronic disease? How would you kind of classify it in that sense? Yeah, it's a chronic disease, clearly chronic. I mean, it's a... I mean, I, I, I tend to call it a syndrome because there's so many things related to it. I think that you know, finer minds than mine are going to come along. You know, we need some photocopiers and some calculators to come along and add the detail, you know, and add, you know, because, you know, is it a disease? Is it a syndrome? But it's definitely chronic. You know, you see these problems, you know, fixed braces or fixed retainers, permanent retainers. Well, that's an answer to a chronic problem. You know, you can't have a situation where you have indefinite something. 
It's true. The, and as we said, the, the rise of sleep apnea certainly seems to be a, a consequence, um, something that I'm seeing in, in kids more and more, which is just, you know, it, it's just really yeah, alarming yeah, 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 that, yeah, that we're... We, and parents are really coming in quite distressed, you know, that, that, that their child isn't breathing well at night. And, you know, you can see the... the that, that, that should be mandatory. I mean, you know, if you are a parent... You must go in to see your child, and I recommend somewhere between a 90 minutes and two hours after they've gone to sleep. Because then they're, when you count the phases, then they're in a phase where you can get a good predictor of they should be whether sleeping or not. And you can use all those loads of programs you can get. You know, if you've got a phone, you can get these programs to measure the sleep noise. You can do it for yourself. But, you know, my, my, my goal here is prevention, Steve. So, you know, anything we can do to prevent these problems from happening in the first place. That's why you've got young kids, you know, get them prevented. You, you know what's at stake here. The, um, the, the two solutions for sleep apnea you know, currently are the, you know, the CPAP or the mandibular advancement splint. Um, and you mentioned prevention. But so, so Michael asks, you know, is there a window of time that people can prevent sleep apnea or techniques or, you know? It, window of time. That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, that Jesuit f- phrase, give me a child until they are seven and I will give you a man. Bit sexist. Jesuit phrase. Um, I think that it is so much easier to get in there early. So before seven years old is really vital because that's when people build up. It's very easy when you're that age to build up a habit that can last a lifetime. And, you know, that, that's vitally important. Now, that, I guess, using certain techniques. Yeah, well, certain techniques... So let, let's go through this. So I think that um, I made a big list the other day. When you're young, you know, um, having a fit mother with good abdominal strength, I think, is important. I think that's something we're missing because we've got so many parents that are older. You know, I'm not, I'm not making judgments. People are older. They'll have lower abdominal muscle tone and they're sitting all the time. You know? I'm looking for avenues that could be affecting pre, you know, um, congenital issues. And I see well, there are lots of kids born now who have got malocclusion when they're born. Why? I, crumbs, you know, that, that, that doesn't totally make sense to me. But I've got to, you know, I've got to face the things I don't find easy. Then we go through, you know, as I said, um, baby led weaning, breastfeeding, um, hard foods, um, breathing through their nose, um, lips together, standing up straight, mealtime exercises, onto chewing gum, um, lip taping. These are all the things you can do sort of without treatment. Okay. Now, at four to six years old, I'll often do just what my grandfather did with a burst of expansion. With some training, with some tough chewing, we widen, have a year's program, a year only, to see if we can nudge people in the right direction. It can be helpful, but these days I frequently find they will need further treatment. Usually lesser treatment, but they will need more treatment. Then at sort of six to eight years old, I can start conventional classic orthotropics, depending on the situation. Seven or eight is usually a good age. Depends on the presentation. 
then as you start getting the wrong side of 10 years old, then I start needing more treatment and more motivation from the individual. And when you turn, and with what I dislike the most is a sort of 14-year-old plus that come into the clinic and they've been told that they've, you know, they've been seen an orthodontist who will say, I've got, yeah, we're going to take teeth out. So they've hunted around, they've found me, and they've turned up to me, and they're going to say, oh, well, when are you going to put the brace in that's going to make me better? And I'm saying, well, you've got to work hard. And they go, of course I'll work hard. I'm there. Yeah. And um, is that great? You know, I've, I had a, a kid in, he was actually 15, and he, 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 parents took him to an orthodontist. They said he was going to have to take out two upper teeth, pull the rest back. He found me online. He dragged his parents along, and he is, he is literally, yes, sir. What else, sir? Yeah, I'll do it. Get up, chew these, chew these, chew, chew, done. What next? Ah, incredible. And to see the facial change going on in him is just like, it's crazy. And you realize what can be done if you have decent motivation. And I'm looking around at all these sort of slothly kids who come in expecting me to pick the bits up and make up for the work they're not going to do. And then I have a recurrence when, you know, then at the 20 year olds, then I get a lot of 18, 20 year olds who are coming to me and they want the treatment. You know, they're paying for it themselves. And they then focus and commit to treatment. So up to, and I'm taking now, we're opening the, the books to patients up to 35 years old. And we're getting people who are getting, they tend to be hyper-motivated. And it's all down to that motivation. You're either under seven or we're going to start needing motivation, quite big motivation. Even, even some of the younger ones, it's more motivation. But and of course, I haven't got it perfectly worked out yet. You know, I'm trying to do that. I would love some help from the teaching establishments, from the, 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 the full-time salaried staff whose job it is to help me. You know, we've spent all of this time, you know, I'm almost afraid to say that statement. Sorry, this is true. We're paying our taxes. And the salaried professors, it's their job to listen to us, observe abnormalities that we might show, like the odd incredible result and investigate it further it's not our job to have to go and you know people keep telling me oh mike go and research do some research and prove to me that your system's any good was lucky we didn't ask einstein to do that wasn't it you know oh einstein on your spare time when you're not working at the patent office make some money to build a um a large hadron collider and then we'll help you can prove it no, they just, they looked into what he was saying, said, well, this make logical sense. They engaged in the scientific process and they moved forwards. And in a way, I, I don't know what it is. It, you know, even my father and all of my colleagues around me go, oh, well, you know, the professors aren't. No, the professors should be doing their job. They should be looking into this. This is really important. This is vitally important. And the idea is we have a system we're, we both live in relatively socialized countries. 
where we have professors who are paid for by our taxes to look into these systems. And that's what should be happening. We need to kickstart this system so that it works. And that's one of my missions. Just get it going. Just get engagement in the scientific process from the top down. Really, there's no way that, you know, how can people turn around to me and go, oh, well, I want you to prove to me that, what? How? You know, I'm, you know I, I, I work as many hours as I possibly can. We just are getting profit worthy here now. After a decade of literally not having holidays. You know, I've got Crohn's disease. I've got two children I want to bring up. I'm supposed to just work all hours God gives me to prove it to be. I mean, it is hard work, really hard work doing this. And, and it's not that I just get help. I get utterly the opposite. I get slapped down at every opportunity. And that is, it just is unhelpful. You know? Do you think the, um, I mean, this is a very complex issue, as you say. It's very hard yeah. to, I mean, I, I remember when I was first, you know, I think it was 2016, I saw you and, um, you know, just kind of diving into exactly what you did. Um, it, it was very hard for me to get my head around all of the different things. You know, you mentioned you went to an ENT surgeon. You went to, there's a lot going on that you have to really kind of go in and think about and then consider to to put all this together. Do you yeah. think that it's it's a very hard problem has kind of held it back and that it's kind of that it's it's yeah in a way in a way and of course again it's coming back to that thing is the pretty face thing. You know, you we're making pretty faces. Oh well we're proper doctors and you're just making pretty faces. And you know you know, also, you know, it's inevitable, isn't it? You know, how many times do we have this? We hear again in medicine. You know, medicine is really good at making little course corrections, you know, going like this in an angle. It's very bad. Woo! We've gone the wrong way. Science in general is very bad at admitting it's gone the wrong way. It's set up to make little course corrections. You know, we look for the heroes in science and all the uh, people who got the A-stars and um, they're going to be the researchers and, you know, people like me, they wanted to kick me out of the university. You know, they were concerned I was spending too much time in the bar, not studying enough and um, not passing exams. And, you know... Oh there, you know, I, I got I got good patient skills. Go no, yeah, you, I, I've I've seen you, I've seen I've seen your practice. Your your patients love you, and you know what? Um, I've I've seen a rise in um these kind of patients that, and some have come across your work and they've been following your work, and they are really really motivated into this stuff, and and they've read yeah. a lot. And I had a, well, I've got yeah, a very. Yeah, I mean, they they, they I, I'm really really impressed with many people follow me. You know, I mean, guys, for all of you listening out there, I, I mean, it really does blow me away how knowledgeable you are, how helpful you are at telling other people, spreading this word message. And, you know, it, it kind of makes me feel that I have to up my game to be worthy of the followership that I get. So thank you. You know, you are doing your, you are helping. 
And um, yeah, yeah, it's useful because I tell you, sometimes I feel very alone. Yeah. You know, as I said, see, the constant thing I've said to people, as I said to people, you know, you've got the establishment here, you know, the absolute standard way. And you've got all of these non-mainstream, where am I with this? It's not mirror. You've got all of these non-mainstream people here. And then we are over here somewhere. I, I think a lot of people don't realize just how different we are. And our thinking is, they just assume we're not taking teeth out, non-extractionist. Why well, couldn't be, I mean, we're not really trying. It's just, if I took teeth out, I would have even more space. My problem is that I end up with bags of space in mouths. I remember seeing that some of the palates I observed in your clinic, that, that was one of the moments that, that really kind of opened my eyes. Like, this is an impressive amount of space at the back of this, the intermolar width that we saw. It, it's, it's not one or two, it's every single patient. Hmm. This is a lot. It's like I have a breed of giant mouthed children <laughs> who have good faces that come to see me. It's just, it, it's crazy. And, you know, the value to, I learned, I had Nick, okay, I wouldn't say, I'd say his surname. Nick came in the other day with his mother and he's, um, he just, he must be six, 16, 17. He's just finished growing. He's a little below me. He's a little bit upset about that. I've known him since he was seven or something. And he is just so confident in life. You know, just exudes confidence. And he's got this chiseled jaw, decent, not the best cheekbones, but decent cheekbones. But I tell you, a really chiseled jaw. And you pick up the photographs of when he was seven years old and he, you know, it was okay, but most kid, kids get worse from that. And here he is just the, the, just oozing confidence. And you're thinking, I did that. I mean, it just, you know, and he, is, he, he goes to private school, which sure helps. But, you know, I, I had a parent the other day who said to me, just said to me, Mike, you know, it was the choice was you or private education. We chose your treatment. And you know what? Hands over. Hands over. That was a good decision. I mean, you, you think about the, um, you know, the connection, you know, between their sleep breathing, you know, straight connection to how a, a, if you've a child that is seven has a better developed um, airway and that they're avoiding any kind of sleep issues, which we know can affect growth and development, then, you know, it, it makes sense that you may have these outcomes where these better developed, you know, young adults, because they're, because they're, they're sleeping better, you know, just straight on that, that point, yeah. you know, Patrick McEwen, um, I spoke to him a few weeks ago. He talked about his early experiences with these allergies and these terrible learning experiences. He had the pressure of trying to go through um, secondary and tertiary education when you can't sleep. You know, it, it, for parents out there, it really is a very, very powerful message. If you want your kids to do well, which is every parent on the planet, right, they need to sleep and rest well. And, you know, that, that story that you tell really kind of, you know, it, it resonates with me that, that you've helped this child grow and develop. So it, it helps them be a better person in, in that way. And the thing is, you know, Steve, I'm not finished. I'm scraping the surface. Wait till you see me really get cracking. And we've started the atmosphere because the hard thing was getting this clinic open all the time with decent staff. That was, that was my real, and getting enough patients coming to see me. 
you know, I, I was just, it was, you know, what you do, as you said, it, it's very hard to understand this. So before people get their heads around it, or enough people in my local area who can come and see me can afford it and have the motivation to do it, I, I we, we were just seen with no patience. And I just, I, I, I had, you know, I had to make some life decisions. And I decided to throw my money where my mouth was and live my dreams. And it paid out. And it mainly paid out because of the people online following me and propagate that, that's it, that it's it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a slave to these people. You know, I owe them everything. And after that, but I was always going to do the right thing, but I'll do the right thing extra doubly do now. Let's talk about something because you, you've you've helped educate people about this this tongue connection to to palate development. So, I mean, let's talk about some of the messages that have really resonated with people as to how the how you change your tongue habits to potentially, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of 17 year old you know um, boys doing your your online programs because mm. of the idea that it gets them chiseled cheeks and jaws. So, what mm. what are the principles that you found have resonated well with people? that has, you know, pushed this to the point where you know, you're being, um, you know, covered in the New York Times, for instance. Mm. Or stopped in the supermarket when I go to buy things. <laughs> yeah, that's the most. I tell you, Steve, in New York Times, you know, that article was, I, mean, I don't think the New York Times could come to bring itself to put its finger right on the, the full scandal that's going on. So they tried to paint us as a bit weird with a twist at the end that maybe we're correct. Um, well, I, think, I mean, I think a lot of people have got into this chewing, but I think that one of the things that one of the reasons this really resonates and this message has, has, has gone so well is that there's a lot of kids who were forced to have orthodontics by their parents. They didn't really want orthodontics. It wasn't a pleasant experience. They're now forced to wear retainers that they don't like wearing. And now they find out that the whole process that they didn't want to have, well, someone basically lied to their parents and the retainers that are now wearing are probably detrimental for them. This is my opinion. And so that, I think, makes a group of quite angry young individuals and kind of rightly so. You know, this is their health. And of course, this is how they look. And this is this really sensitive age that they have, you know, these, these late teens, early 20s, they realize that, you know, someone's messed their face up and they're having to wear a retainer they don't want to retain. And they didn't like the experience they had. And they suddenly realize, well, actually, there's something I can do about it. That makes sense. And uh, something else, I tell you, when I, 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 my job here is to change facial form. And I'm often reviewing back on the photographs that I have um, of patients. That's, that's, I, I literally work with a photograph in one hand of where they started, looking at the patient with you. I've, I've done that with you, looking at these facial changes. And what I know is when you, in the cold light, the cold, harsh light of day, when you put the photographs up on a computer and you look at them, I tell you, Facial change isn't as obvious on a photograph as, as you know it is, because you can see this person, you can see how they've changed. They've blossomed. Yet when you put the photographs up, it's not quite as good. 
Now, for me to see Muir's, whose facial form has changed so dramatically, means that there's that's the tip of the iceberg. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who can see they look a lot better. It's not as easy to put onto a photograph. They didn't have photographs. But, you know, I, 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 I don't have time to dip into the mewing world very often. You know, I, I wish I did. And that's something I'm trying to walk toward making more time to do these things. But what I do notice is there's some stunning results. And the mewing world has got its, it, it's, 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 it's got its own legs. And I, you know, in a way, I don't want to, I, I don't want to monopolize takeover. We are going to be doing an app because I think that A, we need to properly educate people, get the information out there, create a community. And to do the changes I'm going to do, change the world, I'm going to need some income from this. You know, income's always been my hard, the hardest thing, you know, life has been tough. So we're going to reduce an app and that will be helping people. It will be a phone app. So we've done some preliminary filming. It's getting on there now, getting on with it. And we're aiming to do this as cheap as possible. But the idea is to take this further, to understand more. You know, if I can get people telling me how they got changes, we can actually make a science out of mewing. And that will help people. One one of the interesting um, patterns I've noticed are people posting their results of, of mewing on the internet. Have you seen a lot of those? A lot of people are posting their videos, a lot of YouTube. I, I'm not a kind of a, I don't really kind of venture on YouTube very much, but I see a lot of people posting their results. And, you know, you're talking, some people have, have gone on six to 12, you know, months up to years doing your program. And, you, you know, they, they're showing that, that how they're, um, you know, obviously you can see them in better posture, but also too, um, I know what you mean in terms of like the, the photos and the images don't potentially give it um, as, as much justice as what you might see in, in the person, especially when a person is standing up straight and breathing well. And, you know, the, the, you know, and the face is speaking to you, you know, it goes right back to what we, we spoke about in the beginning that you know, there's this deep connection between humans when they look at each other's face there's something about that um but there's there's this whole movement of people that are that are posting their own and i've had patients come in that are um you know they, they call themselves mewers and it's it's really fascinating to see this movement moving forward and it's great that you're um that you're you know you're working to put it together and you know we yeah, really have well, to, there's a I lot mean, of people that owe you a lot for doing that yeah, well, this is kind of, you know, you, you get this sort of civic responsibility and I've been forced into this position of civic responsibility that I will take very seriously. And, you know, and, you know, one thing I want to do with this app is try to create eventually second generation or third generation, a marketplace where people can get, get return, get, get, get rewarded for sharing their ideas and helping other people. And I think that's very important because then you send up an internal economy of people to make people better. And that's what we've got to go. You know, I literally, I, I don't care if the best technique is hypnosis. If that technique helps people and adds value to people's lives, then I will promote that technique. And you can't, science doesn't come up with preordained, you know, you, you, you don't, and that's the problem at the moment. 
you know, the orthodontists want, you know, this method or that, but they've got a structure and they're expecting that structure to produce answers and those people to produce answers. Do you think this area is is part of a little bit of a a, a renaissance that uh, you know we're having in terms of understanding the human body? You know, in two thousand one there was the human human genome project, and in two thousand eight the human microbiome project. You know, that showed that there are trillions of bacteria living within the the digestive system. Yeah, and this yeah. is, that that's a huge spanner into what we think about. You know, even infection theories and so forth. That that the body is far, far more complex than we ever really ever dreamed of. Far more complex and far simpler as well at the same time. Well, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It, and, and you know, it, it's fascinating to see because, of course, with this human biome, you know, I'm, I don't think it's fortunate, but I have a chronic disease. So I have Crohn's disease. So I have to... I've had to learn, you know, I've had to really look into this microbiome thing. And, you know, I've, I now have a, I've, I've now stabilized my weight. It went up. They gave me all these hugely calorific drinks that you could tell every time I had one of these, I felt bloated and uncomfortable. I've stopped having those. Of course, my diet has dropped back down again. And then I've got off on a sort of flat level of, I mean, I'm trying to break 67 kilos now, which... Someone at 183, I should be heavier than that. However, it's forcing me to look into the body, and it's fascinating. But I always thought it was going to be this way. You know, even I remember in the 90s thinking, I bet you there's a hell of a lot of bacteria in our sides, inside us, that we just don't know about because we can't culture it. And I'm sure it's something to do with that that's leading to the Crohn's. But it's interesting to be, you know, in the Crohn's world and in the orthodontic world and seeing these two things slightly separately. But I think in, in a way, Steve, we're talking about a renaissance. We're talking about going back to some more traditional family values here. Sit up straight, elbows off the table, um, eat with your mouth shut, you know, all of this stuff. And in a way, and I've noticed this when I'm at home, that... If you win at the dinner table, you're in control of the house. Strange thing, that. But I'll make sure if I can get my kids, and I will tell the kids, I go, right, kids, having dinner properly, anyone messes up, we will end up, I'll put you on the naughty step. You were going to sit up with your mouth closed. And you have to then take someone to the naughty step to make sure it's understood. But then, you know, that you, you know, you 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 take this interactive or um, confrontational situation, the dinner table, and you take this as a microcosm of your control in the house. And if you can win that, then you're in control in the house. And that, I think, you know, that's going to... There are going to be a subset of parents that are going to follow that as I evolve and could make a book on that or something that you will see a subset of parents who will follow those values i don't know how wide that will go i don't know if we're ready to turn the thing you remember we go back 150 years the victorians were very organized this is you know it was a very structured society but also it was a very unforgiving society so don't be black don't be female don't be divorced don't have a child out of wedlock 
don't do these things. So now we're in a much more understanding society, but with less rules. Now, are we going to slowly start to cut back up, go up to where the, where the Victorians were? And will we do it with a different flavour, being more accepting? But it's interesting how these, these the whole fads change, backwards and forwards at different times. And it's always changing. The, the 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 idea of sitting up straight, obviously in spinal posture, and this, one area that is really that, um, or or one group of people that I think really like this um, this kind of uh, approach that you take to thinking about how the jaw grows are the body workers, uh, mm. you know, the, the chiropractors, the osteopaths. How have you seen that? I mean, because that's a very disconnected world, and that's a whole other. Yeah. Now how, the how that play out? Okay. Now let me in one minute upset everyone. Okay, so I see people that go to the osteopath. Yeah, they've got body posture like this. They go to see the cops, the chiropractors, osteopaths, and um, physiotherapists. And if you're in America and you're wondering what an osteopath is, you know, read what everyone else in the world calls an osteopath. And people go with great body posture. They go along to see to one of the cops and they've probably had a sports injury or something. They get repaired. They get fixed. They never come back again. They get a treatment. They never come back. Okay. Then you have the people with moderately bad body posture. Okay. They go every month or every two months. They're on first name terms. They do Christmas cards and they know the family. They're the bread and butter of the cops. And they're being kept going. Then you have the people with a terrible body posture. And they go from one member of the cops to another member, to another member, to another member, trying to find salvation. What I don't see is anyone really actually putting people back together and perfect. My analogy of it is imagine that you've got the world's best mantelpiece clock that has got primary, secondary, quaternary, and uh, tertiary and quaternary backup systems. It's a fantastic mantelpiece clock, but it's made of plastic. And the fire's got a little bit hot, and this whole clock has gone and melted over slightly to one side. Now, what I think the cops are doing is they're making these things tell the right time. So they're going to adjust this clock so it tells perfect time. And I'm saying to them, but it's bent. And they go, oh, but it's telling perfect time. And I'm going, but it's still bent. And they're saying, oh, well, everyone else is bent. Where are we going? And I, 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 I don't know what the answer is, but I just, there's... I'm struggling for someone who is actually making people better. And I think the problem with this is that usually you go to osteopaths, chiropractors, or physiotherapists to get out of pain. That is usually the thing. And they're brilliant at getting people out of pain. You don't go to one of the cops to get perfect body posture. And most people wouldn't do it because you need such massive motivation. You know, I had someone from the Goclay system come and give a course here at the weekend, a weekend, not recently. And 
it was a good course and it was very interesting. But I'm thinking, how am I going to remember to do this stuff all the time? Where's the, my motivation for doing this? Well, if I had pain, that would be a great motivator. But if I don't have pain, why am I going to do it? Why am I going to remember to do it? And here is in the problem. Do you think there's a connection between a lack of understanding of how potentially the tongue um, supports, you know, the, the craniofacial posture and what body workers are doing that is that is potentially maybe a missing piece between, um, you know... I, I, I don't know. And... I mean, that could be a missing piece, yes, but I don't want to jump to um, ideas. You know, so many people are sending me ideas. You know, I mean, who would we had the people sending these in recently? They were contacting me, these sort of breathing devices you do. And um, and they want me to feedback. Oh, did I like it? Well, I, I don't really know. I mean, if I tried one on myself, I'd, I'd need to have a lot more and a lot more patience. And they're not cheap. Um, and it's this constant, you know, people are coming. And, and there's so many different ideas. And I look at the Wim Hof method, and well, that sounds interesting. Then I look at the Butego method, and it completely contradicts the Wim Hof method. And also seems, and I'm just, well, what's going on here? You know. We just need to really sit down and think and really have these. We need to engage in the scientific process. And I tell you, a lot of the non-mainstream people are, are really bad with the scientific process and really bad when I try and challenge them. You know, it, it, it's, it, I see issues with science from all quarters. Now, Steve, is, I would really love to do some questions because, you know, as I said, I owe all my success to um, my followers, all of it. Sounds like a good idea. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of questions here. I'll just encourage because we're obviously reaching the end here for people to yeah. put their um, you know, to put their questions to to Mike. Now, the um, one thing we've talked about is the development of, of certain um, – of certain uh, development types in kids. We didn't cover the, the, okay. the type All of right. so, so Tanya what, asked, please address what to do with class three maxillary insufficiency. Okay. Can you quickly right. explain so some of that? All, yeah, first of all, what causes class three? Right? So the profession believes it's genetic. But I mean, I'm sure there's some, there are some little genetic tendencies. But sorry, that doesn't make something genetic. I mean, the evidence doesn't come down that's genetic. Anyone wants to discuss this with me, open space. Now, I think what's happening is you're affected by craniofacial dystrophy. You want to better breathe well and you want to compensate. So what you're going to do is you're going to drop your tongue down low in the mouth. And then you're going to hold the mandible forward slightly. And that's a great way of maintaining an open airway if you try it. Great way. In fact, don't even do that. If you simply touch the lower front teeth with your tongue, sit there for a while and then try and bite together, and you'll find your jaw has been held slightly further forwards just from doing that. Well, if you do that all the time, it will grow further forward. And that is your compensating mechanism so that you can breathe properly and you've got a comfortable airway. Great. Now, what can you do about it? Well, all right, if someone is, so what do I do? I would take someone at five, six years. I haven't done any younger. Five and a half was the youngest I've done. 
and I would place appliance in the roof of their mouth, and then I'd put some forward pull contraption. You know, I've got the Vector neck gear, we've got the Hickam. Those are the two I'd put my money on at the moment. And I would literally pull the top drawer forwards. Then let it go for a little bit, let it settle down. I'd widen the lower so to match the forward, the widening I've done in the upper. And now I've got everything further forward. It looks much nicer. Now, the problem with class threes is if you just leave it, the result will go in time. So you're going to need some type of system, reminding system, educating system to keep this change happening fresh. So I then go to a nighttime appliance, having done that. And you talk about one to two to one to three years of treatment. And then you're going to put a nighttime reminding appliance in them, then remind the basics, sit up straight, eat tough food, um, breathe out your nose, lips together, um, taping at night if necessary. And these are the sort of things that you can attract with class three. Now, I've just taken on a couple of class three people in their early 20s. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing the tads into the roof of the mouth. So those are like bone screws. And basically doing the same thing with the addition of these tads. And the preliminary results look nice. Um, you know, I'll report more as we go forwards i've almost been holding cases back for certain reasons fairly soon we'll start pumping them out because and i you know we don't treat that many patients here so i don't have that many cases to distribute but i have some really nice cases particularly some class three cases and yeah with class three and i mean but the, the essential thing with class three is get the tongue up get the tongue in the roof of the mouth and break this tongue to lower tooth habit. That's what I've learned relatively recently, is breaking that habit. Getting good muscle tone, but again, tongue in the roof of the mouth, but you won't get the tongue in the roof of the mouth without a lot of space this way, but also having the whole maxilla forwards so you've got space in this direction, or this, in this direction. Yeah, getting that maxilla forwards and upwards. The further forward that maxilla is from the hyoid bone, the better. Mike, D Diana asks... Why would taking those a potentially bad idea? But sorry, jumped in. Um, right, so why are retainers potentially a bad idea? Because they can hold the teeth out the balance zone. So imagine, okay, I remember this now there's this story. So we were having a big round robin mail with the great and good of the non-mainstream orthodontics in the U in, in Europe. And someone said, um, Professor Magni said, he said he remembers treating this young boy. And this young boy had crowded lower front teeth. Everything else was perfect. He had crowded lower front teeth. So they put in a lip bumper. And what the lip bumper did was hold the lip back. So it holds the lower lip back. And it's also a little bit uncomfortable so that you don't, um, you, you try and change. You're not going to use your lip as much. But this one clearly mainly simply did the job for the individual. The teeth, front teeth came forward, bottom front teeth came forward, lined up so perfectly that everyone was very happy. Big round of applause. 
They put a fixed retainer on the back of the teeth, and then the child went. Now, about two years later, the mother brings a child back into the clinic. Not happy. The retainer is still perfectly bonded to the back of these lower front teeth. And the lower front teeth are in a perfect position. But the gum on these teeth has just dropped down. And all front teeth are standing there with two, three millimetres of root exposed all the way around. So now what's happened? Well, when you put the lip bumper on, you change the balance zone. So the teeth, the bone and the gum all came forwards. Now you've braced the teeth, braced them in a set position. The function has re-established itself because he didn't change. And the bone of the gum has gone back because the teeth didn't go back because they were held with the fixed braces. And that's what can go wrong with retainers. And I see people, and actually, and this is what upsets me the most, because a lot of my, when I said that you've got, um, where is it, mainstream orthodontics, non-mainstream orthodontics, and then we're around all the way outside, so I'm not working well. This is a real, it's not a mirror image, it's a real image. So either way, so we stand so far away from non-mainstream orthodontics. I think a lot of these people get a bit of a, a shock when I actually mention what we do. Anyway, clearly, so I, I know that a lot of colleagues I deeply respect are doing a lot of expansion, a lot of daemon, a lot of these other things, okay? They're widening the dental arches, whoa, a good four or five millimeters. And then they're just putting retainers on, holding these teeth out there. And we are seeing, or we're starting to see, lots of fenestration and dehiscence in the bone. But we're starting to see a lot of this anyway. You know, I had a girl, um, I met a girl who was a dental nurse who worked weekends for a forensic dentist. So he's looking at dead people. You know, when people die and you find their body and one of the ways you can recognize them or identify them is by using the teeth. And so he's getting to see in places where most people don't. You know, I don't get to lift the gums up of a 14-year-old boy and see what's going on. And yet he does, because there's no gums left. And he remember the girl, this dental nurse, remembers him commenting to her. He says, it's like we're a different species now. And we've got fenestration dehiscence on the teeth. So these are the, the, the teeth broken through, the roots of the teeth broken through the bone everywhere. And these are young kids. And we're starting to see it now with adults because remember, mass orthodontics didn't start till, I guess, the, the 80s in America and the um, 90s in Europe, Australia, and lots of the rest of the world, the, what we used to call the developed world. And so that means orthodontics, the oldest people with retainers, the big chunks, are in their 40s. Well, realistically, I know myself, you know, you can be abusive. You, know, you can drink alcohol and you can do what you want. After 40, life catches up with you. And I have a friend in the States who's a P, uh, who's a um, gums um, periodontist. And they said they're starting to see P 
people coming in who are still wearing their retainers from when they had orthodontics. They get a little bit of gum disease and it runs through the mouth like wildfire. They then lose a lot of upper back teeth and there's no ridge to put a denture on. And what's really worrying was the big um, non, you know, expansion rather than extraction. So people weren't widening these arches. Previously, they were taking teeth out. And the real change happened in the late 90s, principally because of my father. And he caused a world change in the amount of teeth taken out. And so people are just widening these arches. And of course, they're all 10 years younger. And so they're all stored up. And I really worry about that future. Yeah, I can't tell you to stop wearing retainer. Please don't, don't stop on my account, because what else are you going to have? And I can't be responsible for your relapse. Well, I can't be responsible for the problems with retainers either. And so, and the main point you're trying to make there is that there are there are physiological factors here that you know we can potentially train. They're not easy. Um, not easy, and, no. Yeah, not easy. And and going through my own kind of journey in, in learning, you know, sleep breathing and so forth, it, it is definitely not easy. Mike, I just want to thank you so much for okay. uh, spending some time with us this evening. I know you're it's late. Um, in the UK now. Yeah, it's late. We're with what? It must be nine o'clock now. So yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, my kids are already in bed, so I missed that tonight. Missed that. Yeah. Look, I really appreciate you spending time, and there's That's a lot okay. of people out there that love your work, and it's really being enlightening Thanks. to hear your story. Tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing, where people can find you. Well, I mean, you mean yes. I'd almost say don't try and find me. You know, um, we already get a hundred mail. I mean. You, Try not to send mails to my clinic. It actually just it, it drains the staff work trying to feel with mails. You know, we don't answer questions on mewing. They're not qualified to. I don't have time to. And, you know, all of these questions we get on treatment and the complex questions. And people send me, you know, mails this long. with all, And I've, what am I going to do with this? You know, I, I'm getting two a day. It, it, you know, sorry, you know, that's why I need to change the world so you, I don't need to answer all these mails. Um, what, what to do? It's, it's, you know, really, you know, please support the, the Prevent Crooked Teeth campaign. I'd love to see some more signatures on that campaign. I know it's a few years old, but, you know, that's Prevent Crooked. That's what we should be doing. We should be looking at prevention. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned something and you've got a takeaway that you can apply to your own life or to a loved one. If you did enjoy today's show, you can help us get the word out by leaving a review on iTunes. It helps others to find the podcast. Or you can also share directly to a friend. For more information, you can join my mailing list at drstephenlin.com or follow along at social media on Instagram at drstephenlin and Facebook, facebook.com slash drstephenlin. I really look forward to sharing more of the mouth-brain connection with you next week. Mm-hmm.